Well, first, let me say thanks uh, to Nye Marks and to Shepherd LA for uh, bringing our conference together. We're, we're thrilled to be able to host this year, and we are praying, and I ask that you pray along with us that this becomes an annual conference, that we can gather together as local pastors and encourage each other in the work that God has given us to do, that together we can reach our city. Amen? Um, this is a strange season that we all are pastoring in. It's been beyond hard. And I know a lot of you brothers have felt it. It's not just a strange season for us and our local churches. It's a strange season for our nation. It's a strange season for our world. The chronicler said this of the men of Issachar. He called them men of understanding, men who understood the times and men who knew what Israel ought to do. And it is my prayer that as we are in this unique season, this unique tumultuous season, that we will find ourselves as pastors being filled with the wisdom of God so that we would understand and know what God would want us to do. And we didn't get to where we are overnight. It's been a long journey, and I'm going to chronicle it for us quickly. In the 1960s, we rejected innocence, came out of the golden age of Hollywood where Shirley Temple was the leading star. Hollywood self-regulated itself that it would not defile the moral standing of any viewer. And you all remember, I Love Lucy, they were really married, but they had two beds. And they always had to have one foot on the floor in any scene in the bedroom. Uh, a cultural revolution broke out, and we didn't win. That Hollywood rejected its commitment to protect the viewer's morality. And after the 60s, we went into a decade of the 70s where abortion was legalized and the pill became prevalent. And we rejected sexual restraint. We started a sexual revolution. And then in the 80s came around, we rejected decency. For our love for money, we deregulated our communication industry and allowed pornography to be pumped over every cable line. So down to every home and every phone and every TV, things you'd have to do to put on a fake mustache and a, and a hat and a disguise to slip into some dark, seedy place now could be on every single phone because we rejected decency. And then in the 90s, we, we rejected truth. Under postmodernism, the only absolute truth was that there were no absolute truths. And then at the turn of the millennium, we rejected God openly. And one of the New York number one bestsellers and National Book Award finalists was God is Not Great. We rejected God. And then at the turn of the millennium again in the, in the 2010s, with the push of President Obama and the push of our Supreme Court, we rejected a biblical view of marriage. And now in this decade, we're rejecting our God-given identities as male and female image bearers of God. Brothers, there are consequences to sin. If we reject innocence and reject sexual restraint and moral decency and truth and God and a biblical view of marriage and our own God-given identities, we will find ourselves under a cataclysmic mountain of consequences of sin. But I pray as pastors we aren't 
hopeless. The chronicler helps us again in 2 Chronicles chapter 15. The word of God says in verses 1 and following, the spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. So he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, hear me. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, you will find you will be found by him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. For many years, Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest and without instruction. But when they turned to the Lord God of Israel in their distress and sought him, he was found by them. In those times, there was no peace for those who went about their daily activities because the residents of the land had many conflicts. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city for God troubled them with every possible distress. Brothers and sisters, if, when God is your problem, we have a problem. We don't simply have an educational problem, an economic problem, and gas price, and inflation problem. We have a national God problem. And I hope you saw clearly in the text that the problem is not that they were without God. They had gods. They were false gods. The problem is they didn't have the true God. And the reason why they didn't have the true God is because their preachers and teachers were giving them false gods. The solution was clear. God is always ever present. He's just not always clearly seen. It is the men who know God, who are called to preach the word of God, that reveals God. They have to stand up and preach. So don't tumultuous more times. God is looking for a certain kind of preacher and a certain kind of preaching. Preachers who know God and take his word that reveals who he is, and they stand up and they preach God. So that through the Son of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, people might be convicted and brought to repentance, and you might see a revival. But that starts with men of God who know God, who know God's word, who will stand up with courage, with compassion, and preach the word of God. So what I want to do with my time, and I know it's late, brothers. Um, what I want to do with my time is I want us to look carefully at a preacher. A preacher that God used to do just that. He preached the word of God, and God used him to spark a revival. And the Lord knows we need a revival, which means we need preachers. But a certain kind of preacher. And, and I want us to look at this example of a preacher from the book of Ezra. And meet me there in chapter 7. And I'll read verses 1 through 7. And as we look at this preacher, Ezra, there's a certain kind of preaching that God was pleased to bless. And I want us to consider that from three different vantage points, the kind of preaching that God would bless from these verses. In Ezra chapter 7, the word of God says, after these events, and there's a big break between chapter 6 and 7, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, Sariah's son, and Azariah's son, and Hilkiah's son, and Shalom's son, and Zadok's son, and Ahitub's son, and Amariah's son, and Azariah's son, and Marioth's son, and Zeruiah's son, and Uzziah's son, and Buku's son, 
Abushai's son, and Phinehas's son, Eleazar's son, the chief priest Aaron's son, came up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he requested, because the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month since the gracious hand of his God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And here as we look at this preacher, and God was pleased to use Ezra and his preaching, uh, first I want us to consider from these verses the preacher's power. That the preaching that God is pleased by is powerful preaching. And when you look at Ezra, you would just naturally assume, looking at his resume, that this dude is going to be a powerful preacher. If you look at his pedigree, he is a son of Aaron. If you look at his training, he is trained as a priest. When you look at his giftedness, he is a Bible scholar. He's not just a scribe. The text tells us over and over again that he's skilled in the law of Moses, verse 6. And it tells us how he is an expert in the law. He is simply a brilliant, a brilliant man of God. And adding to that, not only is he brilliant, but also he has status before the king of kings. The, the king of Persia gives him a letter that in so many words gives him a blank check to ask for whatever he wants from whomever he wants to accomplish whatever he wants. And verse 11 and 12 tells us that this is Artaxerxes, the king of kings. And literally, he is just that. He is the king of kings. In the ancient Near East and around the world at that time, he had tribal leaders, but in the, in the ancient Near East, you had kings who would conquer other kingdoms, and they would have massive, massive empires that would take on in the rest of the world. But at this point, you have these massive empires, like the Persian Empire was massive. And as a king over other kings, they would give him tributes. And that king, Artaxerxes, he gives Ezra a letter basically giving him favor before whomever he walked before. And so if you look externally at Ezra, you're like, of course this guy is going to be a powerful preacher. Of course God is going to use him. Look at his education. Look at his training. Look at his status. Look at his lineage. This guy simply can't lose. But brothers, God just looks at the heart. Sometimes we can be intimidated. How's God going to use me? I, I don't have the big seminary education. I don't have the big personality. That, that I don't have a huge IQ. How is God going to use me? God doesn't look at any of those things because God doesn't need us. None of us are adequate to open up the eyes of anyone spiritually blind. None of us 
can preach over Lazarus' tomb and call him to rise up and have him get up. But every day we stand in the pulpit before people who are spiritually hell and kellers, spiritually blind, spiritually dumb, spiritually deaf, and God, through his power, opens up eyes, takes stones' hearts and makes them flesh, and raises them out of spiritual dead, and takes chains that have bonded them and breaks them and sets people free. The preaching that God wants, the preaching that God uses, brothers, is preaching that has power. And that's not power that you have, but it's power that God gives. Don't miss the text. It's clear. It tells us how it is that Ezra was such a powerful preacher and how God brings about this revival through him. It says in verse 6, it says in verse 9, it says in verse 28, it says it in other chapters. It says in verse 9 that the gracious hand of God was on him. Brothers, we're talking about that. The fingers that spun galaxies into existence. The hand that picked up Jesus out of the grave and lifted him up on the third day. That the almighty hand of God is upon Ezra working through him so that what God wanted to accomplish through his word, God accomplished it as Ezra yielded himself to speak the word of God. There has to be power in preaching, brothers. And can I encourage you that when God called you as Jonathan illustrated and connected you to a body. He didn't just drop you in any place in the body. <laughs> he gave you a gift that made you a particular part of a body. And if he's called you to be a pastor, then his hand is upon you to use you as a pastor. You don't have to look in the mirror and say, well, why, I'm, not, I'm not this enough and look at your background. I'm not, I'm not that enough. If God has called you and placed you in his body, to be a preaching pastor, then God's hand is all that you need. <laughs> it is strong enough. It is adequate enough. It can accomplish everything that God wants to accomplish in every season that God has called you to preach. In season and out of season, God's hand will use you to accomplish his ends. That's, that's what 1 Corinthians is telling us, brothers. When you look at the body dynamics, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. It is an amazing thing that when God saved us and he fills us with his spirit to gift us, to use us with his strong hand. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, now there are different gifts but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And if the Lord has given you as a gift to the church as a pastor, the Lord did it. Jesus did it. The Holy Spirit has given you a gift, and Jesus has called you to be a preacher in it. And then thirdly, as we use the gift that God, the Holy Spirit has given us, um, in the place that the Lord Jesus has assigned to us, it says, and there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. So God the Father is working through the gift that he gave you, and God is a God effect. The Holy Spirit gives you this gift, 
Jesus gives you a ministry, and there's a God effect as you use your gift. The hand of God will be upon you. And no, none of us are adequate for the preaching of the word of God. But God doesn't call us to be adequate. He calls us to be dependent. That God hasn't called you to be Superman. He's called you to be weak so that he might manifest his strength through your weakness. And so here what Ezra found. Ezra found all of his credentials and all of his favor and all the status he had before the world. He didn't depend upon any of that and he didn't need any of that. What he needed was what he had in God. And what he had was enough. That The preaching that God is looking for is preaching that he himself is empowered. There's a second vantage point I want us to see about the preaching that, that, God, that God wants. Not only is it powerful because he's empowering it, but also it comes by way of commitments. That it comes out of deep-rooted personal commitments. You see it there in the text. In Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, the Bible says, and it starts off with this four, and a lot of the translations, my Christian standard version says now, we should add a four. The four connects verse 10 back to verse 9, that why was God's hand of gracious hand upon Ezra, the text says, for Ezra had committed, Ezra had determined, Ezra had settled his heart. And the idea of setting his heart or committing his heart is directional. That, that Ezra has a goal or aim he wants to accomplish, and he set his heart to that. He's fixed his heart to that. He's determined, he's, he's resolved to accomplish what God has set before him. And he set it in his heart. And brothers, we all know what the heart is. It's, it's the center of who you are. It's where your reasoning faculties come from. Your volition, your will, your feelings, all of that comes from your heart. So Ezra set his heart to be his mind, his will, his volition, so that his mind would be filled with the thoughts of God, so that, so that his, his will would be aligned with the will of God, so that his volition would be fueled by the passion of God, he literally just set his heart. And it's not a commitment that he's making in a whimsical way. This is completely holistic. It's akin to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, I am likewise set apart for the gospel of God. And when Paul says, I'm set apart, Paul means that this is my comprehensive mission. This is my reason for being. This is my vocation. This is my life. I'm set apart for the gospel. And so Ezra likewise, he said, this is, I'm all in. This is what I'm committing myself to. That he's committing himself in a direction and an aim with commitments that the text here outlines in three ways. Ezra set his heart. Ezra had three commitments to reach aims that are determined by God for him, and, and they're outlined in the text. And first of all, he was committed to study. I'll call it prayerful study, because the word literally means like seeking and inquiring, and, and he's inquiring from God's word by means of God's grace and power is hand upon him. So Ezra is seeking, and when you're seeking in a book or a scroll, we 
call that studying. So Ezra is studying. He, he's seeking. He's, he's endeavoring to find answers. Answers that he would need. Answers that were revealed to him who his God is and how to know his God and how to walk with his God and how to please his God. He is seeking from God's revelation of himself, his word. He's seeking to know God and to make that God known. So how do you seek through a manuscripts or scrolls or books? Well, he's, he's reading the text and, and whatever genre that is in, and he's reading it in its historical and biblical context. He's reading grammar and syntax. He's defining key words. And how long did he study? How long was he studying before the text? Pastor, how long do you study? And let me ask it another way. How long should you study? And Ezra is committed, determined in his heart to get an answer. So you have to study as long as it takes to get an answer. That you pour yourself over the word of God until finally, at one o'clock in the morning, finally, Sunday morning at 835. <laughs> My co-pastor, now we joke sometimes. I'm like, it's sad. I'm like, Lord, I need a sermon. I'm preaching tomorrow. Lord, Lord, where are you? I'm like, I need an answer. That we're seeking, but we're seeking from a God who has called you to preach by his powerful anointed hand. He can give you clarity by illuminating all the answers you need. But let me say it this way and let me be clear. Because revelation comes by way of illumination. Or I should say it this way. Revelation comes by way of inspiration. I just messed up my whole joke. So revelation comes by way of inspiration. But illumination comes by perspiration. You have to work at it. That's what Paul commanded Timothy. He commands him to be diligent. Be diligent. Be a workman. Study to show yourself approved. And brothers, that's, that's, that's the commitment. That's the commitment. So God wants powerful preaching, and he will empower us to do that. But he also wants us to be committed preachers. He wants to to be committed to studying his word. This old preacher who said it this way, you can no more do what you don't know than come back from where you ain't never been. Brothers, you have to study the word of God to know God's will and know God's will for his people. There's a second commitment and it follows after the first. As we study to know God and his ways, the text says for the preacher that he's not only committed to studying, but he's also committed to obedience. And in ancient Greece, this is love-motivated obedience. The text says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to do it. That, that, that for Ezra, it wasn't enough for him to fill up his mind with all the, the truths of the word of God. He wanted those truths to permeate his life, to get into his hands and his, his feet and his heart so that it would direct how he lived. Because what Ezra wanted is what I pray all of us as pastors want. Not to be known as some orator out there somewhere and, and some, some eloquent preacher and some, some guy who can pull all these quotes out of the air and mesmerize people and get standing ovations. I pray that what every preacher wants and what God is pleased by is the preacher who wants to love his God, having known him by grace. 
The grace that saves us is the grace that reveals God to us. And who will not bow down to a God who sends his son to hang on a cruel cross for us? A God who, who, whose son comes and gives his life to take us who are his enemies and make us sons and daughters. And here God wants his ways to be known. He wants to reveal who he is. And he's a good, good father. That's who he is. And he loves. And he loves. And he so loves that he gave us his only begotten son. And that kind of love has got to spur some kind of obedience. So in the Old Testament, it's easy to command love because God's not talking about a feeling. He's talking about your allegiance. He's talking about your loyalty. He's talking about who's first. Does God have your whole heart? That's what loving God is in the Old Testament. It is knowing God as he's revealed himself in all of his splendor, majesty, holiness. And the response and the only acceptable response is to give that same God your whole heart to love God. And Ezra had committed to studying the law of God, to know this God, and to love this God exemplified by his obedience. Um, in 08, God gave me an opportunity with my co-pastor and some other friends to, to write a book on purity. And I was on a radio show. It was uh, one of the largest radio shows um, in, in, in the United States, Christian radio shows. It was in the D.C. area. And we're talking about the book. And offline, the host of the show said, how did you find six other pastors who could write a book about purity? That's what she asked me. She was kind of stunned. I said, well, they're just my friends. And as we think about the scandal that's now going on in key denominations and then likewise, that it is easy for some pastors to stand up and be eloquent and to preach and to hold people's attention. And people substitute that for power and think that all is well when all isn't well. That the Bible says that our faith has to show, as Jonathan said, if I can quote my co-pastor and, and tweak it, he says that our, our talk talks, but our walk talks too. And let me add, if your walk contradicts your talk, then that's a hypocrite. That's hypocrisy. And I know we can all out-preach how we can live, but for the preacher who knows God, First John says we're in the light and we should be able to see our sins with our eyes wide open. And in light of seeing our sins before a holy God, we ought to be confessors. Pastors and preachers aren't perfect, but we ought to be habitual, as 1 John says, habitual confessing, and I'll define it, if you're habitual com confessing your sins, and you're a confessor, that's who we have to be. We, we need to be the humblest man in the congregation. If we're before a holy God all week long in his word, we ought to be deeply convicted and thankful for grace every single day in confessing our sins, not hiding. And there's a third commitment that Ezra made, the preacher's commitment, and here that not only that he would study and that he's going to obey, and the order is really important, that he would also, his third commitment, that he would teach God's statutes and ordinances in all of Israel. 
And here the idea of teaching, and you could ask the questions, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And I'll say not a lot. You can just read Acts 28, 31, and Paul talks about preaching and teaching all in the same verse. It's not a big difference. One certainly could be more exhortative, and he's exhorting. And, but, but the idea here is Ezra committed himself to study the law of the Lord, to live it and obey it, and then teach it. And that order is critical. Because to preach without living it is hypocrisy, but to preach without studying it opens the door for heresy. So the preacher has to study. There has to be a commitment. The preacher has to, by God's grace, live out what God reveals to him. And then the preacher is in a position to teach the people the word of God, to cause them to understand, to open up their understanding of the word of God. Um, let me show you how that works out in our New Covenant context. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, one of the verses Paul is distinguishing the Old Covenant ministry of Moses and the New Covenant ministry that we have in preaching the Word of God, Paul here says this amazing thing about our progressive sanctification. He says in verses 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. If I can, I can apply that in a preaching context, brothers, as your churches give you opportunity and God has called you to be broken before his word, as a calling of your life, that this is your occupation, this is your duty, this is your volition, this is your station of life, this is what you do. You, you say broken before the word as a hungry beggar seeking truth to a God who gives it generously and freely, as you're in that place, that you're in the presence of God, that the Holy Spirit, as he illumines our mind to know God through his word, we're experiencing being in the presence of God. And what Paul here writes, that being in the presence of God in that way, it changes us. That God incrementally is conforming us to the things he's revealing of himself in his word. And God is transforming us from one level of glory to the next. And when you stand before your congregation every week, they ought to see you changing and growing. And as you present the word of God before them with power, having resolved your heart to study, having resolved the commitment in your heart to live, now being in that place where you're going to teach, that they come therefore in the presence of God. As the Holy Spirit takes his word, God's word through his preacher and illumines the heart of his people as they hear. They are incrementally transformed. And we get to experience the glory of our God through the preaching of the word together. And we're changed. That's what Ezra wanted. He wanted his God. Wanted to experience the glory of God. He, he wanted his people to experience the, the wonder and glory of God. And so he committed himself to study. He committed himself to live. He committed himself to teaching the word of God. He wanted them. He wanted them to experience the blessing of being in God's presence.
So what do you want, preacher? Want people to come up afterwards and say, oh, Pastor, that was a great sermon, and pat you on the back. I've preached before and got a standing ovation. It was so awkward. I'm like, what do you do with that? Oh, you preach, and someone said, that was, that was a great story you told. I'm like, I'm convicted three times now. <laughs> that was a great story, Pastor. That was a great story. I like that story. Do we not want to be transformed to be more like Jesus? That's the kind of preaching that God wants. That's what God wants. And that preaching comes about when, when there's power, when God's hand is on you. And God's hand is on us when there's deep, these deep, uncompromising commitments. And when these commitments are there, you're God's man. And he wants to use you. You don't have to twist his arm. God is gracious. He, he's, he's saved you to use you. And he's poured out his grace and blessings on you, not to waste it just on you, so that you pour it out to your congregation as you preach. So the preaching that God wants, brothers, is preaching with power. And it's preaching that comes through these commitments. And, and let me turn us to, to Nehemiah chapter 8, and, I, and I'll conclude with the third point. The preaching that God wants, it follows two simple tasks. It's just, it's not complicated what God wants us to do with his word. It's really, it's, 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 it's pretty simple. When you read Ezra's commitment, when you see how God's hand was upon him with power, and then if you connect that to what Ezra actually does in Nehemiah chapter 8 before God's people, you see two tasks. So all the people are gathered together, and what Ezra does is, I pray what we do, and if you aren't doing this, start doing this. And chapter 8, verse 3, it says, while he was facing the square in, the, in front of the water gate, somewhere near the temple, all the people are there. It says he read out of it, out of the book, out of the word of God. He read from it from daybreak until noon before the men that he read the word of God. It says the same thing in verse 8. They read out of the book. That what does God want you to do? What kind of preaching is God looking to bless? What kind of preaching pleases God? Preaching that reads his word. <laughs> Everything you say about the word isn't necessarily the word. People hear the word of God when you read the word of God. Every word is breathed out from God in the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Every word, every phrase, every clause, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, every book, every testament is breathed out by God. And when you read it, your people are hearing God. When... When my oldest daughter was in the hospital and we thought was dying from cancer, people would tell me and my wife, I, you, you two were so strong. She was eight years old and constricted a terminal form of cancer. And, and we went through this with five families and we were the only ones whose loved ones survived. And we were just broken. And when Jesus says in Matthew 4.4, 4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. That was more real to me than I had ever thought in preaching it a hundred times. So we, we, we preach, brothers, but in the biblical context, knowing isn't just being able to say it. You've got to live it and experience it. And so here we are just living by 
every word of God. My, my wife started just posting verses all over the room, and she called them comforting scriptures and Psalm 910 and on and all these promises. And we were clinging. I mean, they were our life. Brothers, do not, do not minimize the power that God has in his word by just reading it. The Bible says the gospel with an equal sign, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. God's word, not your funny stories, not your jokes that fall flat, not your anecdotes, none of that is the power of God. God's word is the power of God. Read the texts of scripture to your people. So Ezra just read the word of God because <laughs> it's the word of God. So he read it. I, I, I remember hearing Mark Dever preach at a, a huge conference one time, and he walked up in the pulpit, and he was preaching Psalm 119. And he said he was going to read Psalm 119. I said, what? I said, Mark, there's 176 verses in Psalm 119. <laughs> like, all these pastors are going to be running for the exits, going to the bathroom, and come back after you finish reading. But that's, that's the commitment that pleases our God. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you literally to read the word of God. Is that not what Paul commanded Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13? Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So don't skip over reading the text to so-called preach the text. When you are preaching the text, you're simply helping your congregation read the text. That's the second task. You read the text, and then what Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us happened, in verse 8, they read out of the book of the law, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. And so that's our task. We read the text and then we make the text clear by explaining the translation, by defining words, by giving historical context, by showing the structure of the text, by giving a, a text in its biblical theological context. You can use illustrations and stories and applications and quotes. Don't preach your stories to preach a story. Your story or illustration has to be a window to show the meaning of the text. So you're just trying to make the text clear. That's what your preaching ought to do. So when, people, when you're done preaching, people ought to come up and talk about, you know, I, I love this sermon. That was a great sermon, Pastor. Well, what did I preach? I don't know. I don't know. But it was good, though. You want your people to say, ah, I know what Ezra 7.10 says. Ah, I know what. Nehemiah 8 is doing, ah, I, I know what the Bible, I know what it says. And the Holy Spirit now, that, that there's, they understand, the Holy Spirit is the one who illumines their hearts and minds as you're making it plain and clear, it's working through you to work in them. And then they have something that they can apply and something that they can do and something that they're going to obey. Let me, let me define expositor preaching simply as this. It's preaching that derives its content it's preaching that the sermon derives its content and structure from the word of God. 
The word of God stays the king through the whole preaching process. You're studying to find out what it means by looking at how it says what it says. And then you preach what it means by how it says what it says. That the text never gets set aside for our stories and our thoughts and our ideas. Well, I'm going to stick this in there because I think it's funny. Well, hopefully you are funny when you stick that in. But even if you are funny, the point is just to preach the word. Paul commands Timothy, preach the word. In expository preaching, that's what we're doing, brothers. We just open up a text and we're saying this is what the text says. And this is what the text means by looking at how the text says what it says. And so if I have three points, because I think I see three points in the text, not because my homiletic professor told me every sermon has to have three points. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me conclude with a letter written by an unknown church member years and years and years ago, so I've updated it a little bit. Um, and she wrote it about preaching and preachers. You can find it in a master seminary book on expository preaching. I thought it was helpful. And this is her letter, or this is the letter, speaking to the preacher. Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail, and nail on the sign, and nail on the sign study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his typewriter and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before the word and broken hearts and the flocks of lives of a superficial flock before a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our godless communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all night through. And let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into a blessing. Shut his mouth forever, spouting remarks. Stop his tongue forever, tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he, he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. Make him exchange his pious stance for, for, him for a humble walk before God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Break his cell phone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him. Quiz him. Examine him. Humili humiliate him for his ignorance of divine things. Shame him for his good comprehension of finance and batting averages and political infighting. Laugh at the frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and, and haunt him with it night and day. Sir, we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares enter the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning newspaper digest the television commentaries, think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten until he can stand up, worn and forlorn and say, thus saith the Lord. 
break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity, smack him hard with his own prestige, corner him with questions about God, cover him with demands from the celestial wisdom, and give him no escape until he comes back with answers from God. And sit him down, or sit down before him when he's ready. Sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left, God's word. And let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come up at last to speak it backwards and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. And when he's burned out, by the flaming word. And when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then beat him gently and bow a, a muted horn before him and lay him down softly and place a two-edged sword on his coffin and raise a trump, his tomb triumphant, for he was a brave soldier of the word of God. And there he died. He became a man of God. Brothers, preachers, this is our calling. This is our task. May God help us. God help us all. May God help us all be found faithful, expositors of his word. Amen. God bless you.